We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. Well, welcome back. Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023. I am Seth Leibson. Our phone number is 602-5080-960. Got David Dahl in my producer's chair, as is his custom and want. And a lot of you have emailed me. Uh, last time he was on, he threw a little bit of a grenade in the room right before he had to exit. And a lot of you have called and emailed saying, bring him back, bring him back. And uh, you don't have to ask me twice, actually, no matter how many times I did get requests to bring him back. It is a delight to open up the show with Brandon Weikert. He is the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. He's the author of The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. And he's the author of Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life. And we will get to that grenade uh, he launched here in a moment. But first, there's another explosion we got to talk about, if uh, you don't mind, Brandon, taking advantage of your national security expertise for the moment. This was... Uh, um, this is a biggie, I think, or you tell me, um, the plane that uh, went down, if that's too passive a voice, you can you can help me out of that. That looks like it uh, took out the head of the Wagner Group, uh, Vegni um, Pergosian. Uh, yeah, talk, talk to us about that, brother, and welcome yeah, back, by the way. Thanks for being with yeah, us. Yeah, well, thank you, and if I sound a little raspy, it's because I'm suffering through COVID right now. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, the election year variant, apparently. That's yes, right. Um, yes. But... but um, Anyway, the um, uh, Prigozhin's death is very bizarre. Um, you know, it's sort of everybody expected this to happen months ago, right around, you know, the resolution of his failed coup. Um, of course, as you know, I was on your program and I was suggesting at the time that I actually didn't think it was a real coup at all. Right. that It was some kind of bizarre inside job. Right. Um, but, um, it didn't uh, last know, very of, long. No one really was, there were no, yes, no, yes, it was bloodless. And, so. uh, mm-hmm. You know, Putin was very forgiving of Prigozhin as if Putin was almost in on it. It was very bizarre. Right. And of course, um, Rebecca Koffler was a big believer in that theory as well. And she's sort of, she was the DIA and CIA's lead analyst for Russia for many years. She herself is from Russia originally. She's now a private citizen who writes about these issues, um, but she's also been floating this. And today I was sort of perusing her Twitter, and I saw that she thinks this is all a giant disinformation operation, that it's designed to uh, distract the Western media from the, the, the pending GOP debate. Uh, and it's designed to basically, uh, it's called uh, information confrontation is the term in the business. It's a, it's a trick that Putin's employing, whether he actually killed Prigozhin or whether Prigozhin jumped out of the plane at the last minute and is living lavishly in an undisclosed location, uh, that this is basically a giant psyop. I, mean, I don't know for sure. This whole thing is very strange to me. Um, you know, on the one hand, you've got Rebecca's theory. On the other hand, you've got people in the establishment in the West, like like Julia Ioff over uh, over at the Atlantic, or off. I don't know how to, I don't know how you say the last name, um, but she's you know basically saying that this was a long time coming that Putin was fulfilling his promise to you know go after his internal enemies and pergoes and proved to be a big one. Um, I have no idea for sure because of the way information has been 
obscured and and it's been you know not really given a clear answer on anything related to Russia anymore or Ukraine for that matter. I do think um, I would not be surprised if this was some kind of psyop like Rebecca thinks. I would not be surprised if this was some sort of uh, feint on the part of Putin if Prigozhin and Putin are somewhere right now in a bunker laughing at all the idiot Americans, uh, you know, as we are basically covering this instead of the very important debate that's going to be happening in a few hours. And so um, I don't know for sure. What we do know is this, though. Um, Prigozhin's, the Wagner group that Prigozhin ran, the Russian mercenary group, has spread, it is metastasized in its uh, presence in Africa. It is now in the tri-nation uh, area, Niger, right. um, the Democratic Republic of Congo, I believe, right. a handful of other places. They are now metastasized there. Running so the mines, of, too, right? Uranium mines and right. gold mines that's and stuff. That's right. Yeah. So whatever is happening with Prigozhin sort of doesn't really matter anymore. Um, you know, remember, I said at the time there was this weird movement of funds from the Pentagon uh, about 48 hours before he initiated his so-called coup a few months ago. And I was convinced there was a connection between uh, that and uh, and Prigozhin's uh, failed coup um, or abortive coup. I don't know for sure, though. But 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 what we do know is that Wagner is stronger now than it has ever been, which is ironic considering how bloody the fighting was for Wagner in Ukraine, that right. they've spread more, and they seem to be more capable. In fact, they seem to be, and you and I talked about this a few weeks ago, they seem to be trying to push Poland into a conflict right. with Russia as well. Right. So it doesn't really matter if Prokosian dies. Ultimately, this is, uh, you know, the threat remains. About those battle-hardened Wagner group um, troops, uh, members, uh, your friend and colleague at 1945, my friend uh, Michael Rubin, he lays out a few different scenarios over at 1945, and he said there is one scenario that's worth thinking about if it is true that uh, Prigozhin is dead, if it is true that he was killed uh, retaliatorily or otherwise uh, by the order of Vladimir Putin that those battle-hardened veterans may very well go on some kind of campaign hunting down policemen, mayors, deputies, ministers throughout the country, uh, eroding uh, Russia's stability. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Putin could easily move, as he put it, from strong horse to hobbled pony. I, I don't know. Well, I mean, any of these things are possible. I well, suppose. and Seth, there's also the option to, to pick from here, because we don't really know. And unfortunately, I wish I had a more definitive answer, but I don't. But there's always the narrative that's been running that I sort of poo-pooed a while ago, but maybe it's actually true that Russia is internally truly weak, that yeah. Putin is not as strong as he appears. And the reason that uh, he didn't kill Prigozhin right away is because precisely he was afraid of the blowback from Wagner. So he waited and delayed and pretended like he was buddy-buddy again uh, with Prigozhin. And then he clipped Prigozhin's wings when Prigozhin and Wagner least expected it um, because he was so weak he couldn't just kill Prigozhin immediately. He had to wait and bide his time. That is a possibility. We don't know because, frankly, the Russians have been so good at this information, but also our Western press has been so bad right. about being intellectually curious and reporting fairly what's going on in Russia and in Ukraine. Right.
Right. The days of those great Russian bureaus, uh, you know, are over. And not, and they weren't always so great either. I mean, a lot of them were doing the bidding of uh, of our enemies. Yeah. But uh, but but you're absolutely right. International reporting is at a major deficit with all the major news organizations these days. Well, reporting in general. I mean, they and don't even reporting know in general. In middle America. Right. Right. You know, they need a bureau in middle America to report what's going on in middle America. It seems like they would, except I fear what they would report. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, right. maybe it's better that we get to handle that. <laughs> Maybe it's better you and I get to handle it. That's right, until they cancel us. And, yeah, until they cancel us. So there's any number of, of, of possible possibilities here. Uh, I wonder if it probably propels a bit of the national security discussion back to the debate stage tonight. Uh, in your estimate, it probably there was. I, 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 I guess I would be stupefied if there weren't a question from Brett Baer about this. Yes, definitely because it's Brett Baer. Yeah. And we know his and his background of, was, he was Pentagon. Pentagon reporter right. for yeah, years. That's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah, he used to get into it with Rumsfeld all the time during the height of Iraq. And I'm going to guess that if there is, and there probably will be, it'll open up a little bit of the attack. Attack on Vivek Ramaswamy, who seems to be the least sure-footed on these issues. It seems well, to and me. you know Vivek is one big, you know, con artist. I mean, my goodness, this guy. Look at look at you know. I went back real quick. I went back and I read part of his thesis from Harvard when oh, he was okay. a bachelor. Uh-huh. You know, he was promoting animal-human hybrid experiments uh-huh. for medical treatments of the kind that I talked about that China has been doing. Uh, for their bio, in my book, Biohack, the kind of very risky, unethical experiments. Vivek was promoting this in 2007 (laughs) when he was an undergrad at Harvard. This was why he went into biotech. So, you know, this guy is not good news. He's not good news, and he's very weak on foreign policy, as you say. Yeah, it 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 is his biggest Achilles heel. There's a lot of charm and a lot of interest on other issues. But scratching some surfaces here, whether it's uh, Taiwan, whether it's Israel, whether I don't... Yeah, I I understand the 9-11 thing. I really do. But the idea that he would even bring it up so as to be attacked on it in the year 2023 is just totally immature and amateur. Vivek worked for George Soros for years. This guy doesn't believe any of that. He knows better. He's just trying to build an audience. That's all. Let me... uh, Let's let's deal with that grenade on the other side of the break, and then... I'll let you re, uh, recuperate. Yeah, and then I'll let you recuperate your voice and deal with uh, what do they call this? What what is this variant called? Well, um, the doctor called it the Kraken variant, but yeah. I called it the election year. Variant. Yeah, it's the election year variant. All right, Brandon Weikert, and I'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I suppose it's appropriate uh, that we came in with a song from Elvis about whose speculation uh, of life uh, does exist in uh, certain precincts as there is speculation that uh, anything could be true with regard to Yevgeny Bergozin of the Wagner Group. But Brandon Weikert is our guest. Speculation about his expertise is nowhere to be found. He is just such a mind alive. He is the author of several books, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, The Shadow War, Ron's Quest for Supremacy, and Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life. Brandon, I do want to do the domestic thing, but real quick, do you want to mention what you just tweeted out real quick? Well, yes, it looks like there are now reports coming in that the Wagner Group stationed in Belarus uh, which was the group that was, I said, was looking like they were trying to pick a fight with Poland on Russia's behalf, is now threatening retaliation um, against whom? We don't know, but the reports are implying against Putin. Yeah. So Putin might have a real, you know, headache coming on yeah. soon. Yeah. 
He may very well. When you were with us last time on Monday, you said if Trump is the nominee, don't let me put words in your mouth, but you said, I believe you said it would be likely he might, it would be likely he'd pick Nikki Haley. Oh, I'm convinced it's not even likely. If, if he's the nominee, which right now, just looking at the polls yeah. and the fact that he is too much, you know, he's too unwilling to risk fighting the other candidates in a fair debate, um, he's going to coast into uh, the nominee nation. And then obviously he'll have to pick a, a running mate. He needs a woman. Uh, and he's going to pick, I think, Nikki Haley. I think this is he's got this obsession with her. He he you know, she hated him when he ran in 2016. She was abysmal to him. And yet he turned around and promoted her as the U.N. ambassador his first term. And he basically and I wrote about this a few weeks ago at 1945. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He basically gave her a free hand to do whatever she wanted to while she was in New York, even undermine his secretary of state, mm-hmm. even undermine his own national security council, even mm-hmm. undermine his own, his own president's presidential orders mm-hmm. whenever she felt, you know, it was necessary, so-called necessary. Uh, but of course, what we know is that Nikki Haley is a committed neoconservative, unapologetic. And her allegiance is to that ideology, which is a, a bankrupt and failed one, and that if she is, in fact, as I believe, going to be his vice presidential nominee, that he will basically uh, be undermined by her as he was by the neoconservative element in his first term. He has this weird thing where he promotes the very people he is claiming he wants to destroy. And it doesn't make any sense because they want to destroy him and they have no compunction about using everything at their disposal to do so even after he's given them power and money. Maybe some odd version of a Machiavellian notion of keeping your enemies close and your uh, your friends close and your enemies close. I don't think he's thinking like that at all. <laughs> but, the, but it raises the question because, I mean, your finger is <laughs> probably on this button. I, again, not to don't let me put words in your mouth, but your finger is probably on this button that the GOP, particularly Donald Trump, has a suburban female particularly voting problem. If that's the case, why would he look to her rather than someone like Christy Noem? Well, because I think that Christy Noem, I don't think he likes her. I don't, I don't think, I think she's too rural for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he doesn't know her the way that he knows. Uh-huh. Um, and, and there's no indication, really, that Christy Noem really wants to be his vice president. I think she's a savvy enough political operator to know that there's a lot of downside risk to that, even if, you know, if he does actually end up winning. Um, and we see the way that his relationships with his advisors deteriorates always, even with, for a period of time, Steve Bannon. Right. Uh, you know, he has these, these, these bouts of just animosity yep. that is very toxic and so he knows nikki haley she worked for him he for whatever reason thinks she's his girl he's got this thing for her i don't know if it's just because she flatters the heck out of him but you know flattery is the key to his heart and um you know i it's very bizarre though and and he and i'm convinced that he is going to pick haley because he thinks he knows her and he can control her and he can't this she's the worst one to try to control um, you know, she's she's completely has her own agenda and she's savvy enough and connected enough to implement that agenda uh, if she were to be given the vice presidential 
uh, office, and she'd be undermining him actively. Uh, you know, it would be horrible for him, but he's going to give it to her, I think, because he rewards people who actively betray him. They do That's come in and out of his world. Up. It is interesting. There, there is something, and he and he does allow that revolving door up to a point. I've seen it. Uh, you had some of it with Chris Christie for a while, to be honest. People have short memories of that, but he he tinkered around with him for— Well, I still think, as, as, as much as I dislike Christie— um, he, had he been made the first White House chief of staff rather than Reince Priebus, I think the, the first term of Trump would have gone much different, much better, much smoother, because Christie did understand yeah. uh, the mechanics of power yeah. in D.C. Yeah. And, what, you know, but, but that's another thing. You know, Trump promised us the very best people. And I'm sorry to say this, and I say this as somebody who I don't hate Trump. I just recognize the weaknesses of the man, and he's got a lot. And, you know, he's no longer, in my opinion, the most dynamic candidate running for office in 2024 he's got a lot of baggage Mm -hmm. baggage he didn't have in 2016 he's got it now and i don't think his personnel choices are good and i think he's consistently demonstrated that once he gets power he basically hands his administration over to people who hate him and disagree with him and will actively undermine him which is why i believe fully he's going to pick nikki haley because he needs a woman and he thinks he can trust her and of course he can't trust her when you watch the debates tonight, Brandon, which I presume you will be doing, are you looking for who takes— Exercise of masochism. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I understand. But that's the business we're in, to quote another old movie. Um, are you looking for the person who is the sharpest on their feet to take down a rival on that stage, or are you looking for the person who can best sock it to Joe Biden or at least the Democratic Party? I'm looking for the person who's going to be able to speak to my values and and what my hopes for the future are. Um, And I think Vivek Ramaswamy is everybody's new darling. But I I think he's actually uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And I think it is very dangerous to entrust the future of the party. And first of all, he's not going to win. Second of all, what all he is, he's been he was recorded as telling a donor that his entire purpose yeah. for running was to kneecap DeSantis, right. which is disgust. Whatever you think of DeSantis, at least DeSantis is very upfront about his objectives and he's willing to attack Trump because they have that's what you have to do to win. But Vivek is lying to people and he's lying to the Trump people saying, Oh, I love Trump. He doesn't love Trump. Remember, in 2020, Vivek was pro-lockdown, was defending Fauci, and I say again, he was pro the kind of risky genetic experiments that were going on in China that likely led to the creation and release of COVID-19 to begin with. So this is a guy that's coming from the biotech world, that's big tech, and he's a guy that's connected with Soros and all of these guys that the right claims to hate, the Trump world claims to be at war with, and yet their alternative, if Trump can't be the guy, apparently is Vivek, not DeSantis. Because Vivek is talking so nicely about Trump, whereas DeSantis is rightly dinging uh, Trump on issues that are Trump's weak, that Trump is weak on. I don't trust Vivek. I don't think anybody should. Chris Christie is obviously out for revenge. He's not a serious candidate. Mike Pence is a joke. Um, you know, the, the other the other Keebler elves are disasters. The only one on that stage going in, at least tonight, that's a serious alternative to Trump is DeSantis, yeah. and if he can if he can prove that he can fend off the incoming attacks, of which there will be many from different sides, then I think he will come out looking better and stronger, and Trump had better watch out because he's going to be galvanized. Brandon, thank you for everything. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you. Talk to you soon. 
Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. John Dombrowski is the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates website. Great website. Learn more about him and his team and what they can do for you. Great way to reach out to him is GrandCanyonPlanning.com. How are you, John? Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. I've been playing a little uh, air, air banjo there. Yeah, that's a great, <laughs> For great your opener. Old, no, I love that song. It's an old Glenn Campbell. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful song. It's, uh, it's, yeah. it's got a lot of biblical overtones, but it's just a great, mm-hmm. great song. Um, Very catchy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, this is interesting. People love these kinds of numbers. I do, too, uh, these kinds of stats. CNBC had an interesting story on what people have on average in their uh, retirement accounts, IRAs, 401ks, 403bs. Mm-hmm. The average IRA is at about 114000 almost. The average 401k yeah. is about 112500 And the average 403b is about 102500 thousand dollars before we talk about what all this means do me a favor there's one number up there that uh, might be raw to a lot of ears 403b what's a 403b okay so there are a variety of different company sponsored retirement plans Uh, a 401k is more traditional people understand what that is many people have that but if you work for a school district or if you work for a hospital Um, the traditional retirement company uh, sponsored plan is something called a 403B. Mm-hmm. Very, very similar to a 401K, just a different uh, code uh, used for those plans, but it is basically the same as any other okay. s- company sponsored plan. Just a, or a government agency may have a 401A is another one. So okay. there are a variety of different types of retirement accounts. Uh, this is just one of many. Okay. Now, when you see those numbers, and you obviously mm-hmm. know those numbers pretty well because that's the business you're in, among other things, what does it tell you? What does it tell you that the average IRA, uh, these are all within shooting distance, the average I- IRA 401 is around yeah. 112000 bucks. What does that tell you? You know, I think, first of all, you have to, it's all relative, right, based on the individual. So where they're at in their financial life, are they young, you know, is they didn't really go into any detail in this particular um, study as to the average age of an individual here, which which would help us understand this a little better, right? If I'm 64 and I'm going to retire in one year when I hit 65, I'll go on Medicare and I'll turn my Social Security on and start drawing from my retirement account. If I had $100,000 in it, it's probably not very much. Uh, but if I was, you know, 45 and I've got 100000 in my retirement account and I'm going to work another 20 years and contribute to that as much as possible and with growth, you know, I can expect that maybe that portfolio is going to be worth three, four $400,000 when I retire. Yeah. A big difference. So uh, I would say uh, when it comes to your retirement accounts and the values of those, I get the question asked to me often when I visit with a new um, client and they'll say, uh, how do we fit in? Are we about average of where the, you know, uh, everyone else is? Um, and, and that's a difficult uh, question for me to answer because really the average, again, is all dependent on that individual, what their overall expenses are in retirement once they're ready to retire. Uh, you know, everybody lives differently. There might be some people that really uh, live very conservatively, and there might be those out there that are trying to keep up with the Joneses. There so, is, uh, yeah. And, and, and the times we live in make these kinds of considerations even all the more yeah. difficult. Everyone, I think, generally gives the advice, pay your future self first, yes. um, you know, put yes. something into it. But, you know, keeping up with the Joneses or keeping up with inflation, it does make that choice a lot harder, doesn't it? <laughs> 
It sure does. And, and as you said, yeah, paying yourself first is something that I usually like to talk to, especially when it's a business owner out yeah, there. Yeah. Uh, you know, because oftentimes with a business owner, they're, you know, growing their business, doing the best they can. They're taking a little money out for themselves. And, you know, they might be giving money to their employees for a retirement plan. But what about them? Are they putting yeah. money away for their own retirement? Oh. And that is really important for you to take that time to put that money away. And if you don't have a sponsored company sponsored plan, you're self-employed. Well, you have other options. You can do an IRA, a Roth IRA. You could create a solo 401k if you're self-employed. So there are a variety of ways for you to create your own retirement path uh, by, by contributing to an individual type of a retirement account. And there are a lot of options for uh, self-employed individuals out there. And I offer that, you know, uh, time to sit down and talk with you to help you understand what those choices are and how to best, uh, you know, choose the right plan for you and manage the contributions for that so that you could, again, continue to keep up at least with the averages out there or hopefully outpace them so that you'll be uh, in a position to retire comfortably when that day comes. John Domorowski, thank you very much. You bet. GrandCanyonPlanning.com. You can request an appointment right there. Securities and advisory services offered through Creative One Securities LLC, a member of Finran Tippett and an investment advisor. Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC and Creative One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Enjoy the debates. I will. I'll look forward to All hearing right. it from your living room. <laughs> News to you. <laughs> okay. I'll see you later. <laughs> see, you, see you soon. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delight to bring back, honor to bring back uh, our good and dear friend, Brett Johnson. He is our constitutional and elections legal scholar, a partner at the law firm of Snell and Wilmer based here in Phoenix offices across the country. Brett, how are you today, sir? Good, good. Thank you for having me. I'm getting my popcorn ready for tonight's debate. Are you? Yeah. What are you looking for? Are you looking for the guy or gal who can best, um, who can work most agilely on agilely, who is most agile on their feet and taking down another panelist or another debater? Are you looking for the guy or gal that will best be able to take on uh, the incumbent? I'm looking for the best person to take on the incumbent. Yeah. So yeah. I'm I'm one of those hope 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 people, and and looking forward to to hearing the the message and you know the attacking back and forth. I'm looking for what are you actually going to do in four years? Yeah. So, yeah. It, it's a job. It's a job interview for me. That's always been the case. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. All right. So I don't know how to set this question up for you. I suppose in all the whiplash we're getting with all the. Um, the new kinds of laws and the new kinds of arguments we're seeing when it comes to uh, se- sex and gender changing and that sort of thing, gender affirming care, whatever the language of art is, I suppose we're getting even more whiplash with the law that has to or the courts that have to deal with them. So one might have woken up on uh, on uh, August 21st this past Monday and seen on CNN, the headline, Federal Judge Blocks Part of Georgia's Ban on Gender-Affirming Care for Trans Youth. But then one might have also woken up to that same day to see the headline, The Eleventh Circuit Upholds Alabama's Limits on Medications for Transgender Youth. And then there's a perhaps third question, which is when you hear about a state legislature or a governor and a state legislature putting a cessation on trans therapies or whatever the term of art you prefer is the third question is how is this even a concern of the courts how do what, what do you even sue on if you're against 
Can you un- unwrinkle this for us? It's it's a tough one, and, and and you know, with anything of evolution of, of healthcare, medicine, people's rights, the internet, media, et cetera, courts have to grapple this, and and um, and I think that that's where the courts are are trying to evaluate. And just so you know, for from a constitutional perspective, there is usually for constitutional rights, there's three levels of review. It's rational basis, and that's like the lowest level, and there's a heightened level for. Um, for other categories that like marriage that 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 might play, and then there's strict scrutiny for First Amendment rights and things based off of race and and um, other due process reasons. And that's where the courts are grappling with this one issue: is where do we actually put it? Right. And that's where you know is it, and that's where the Eleventh Circuit came out very very strongly. Um, in their opinion, overturning the district court. And the district court put it at a heightened level and yep. said, hey, listen, we're dealing with gender issues and we're dealing with parental rights, and therefore I'm going to apply this heightened level of, of scrutiny. And because it's gender and because we've always given parents rights to um, control the health of their, of their children, um, then I'm going to hold this law unconstitutional. And the Lemon Circuit came back and said, hey, not so fast. Um, you actually, you know, this is where the Dobbs, and I said this when we talked yep. about Dobbs yep. originally, yep. the abortion case, is that Dobbs is going to have a wide-ranging impact on constitutional law across the entire Bill of Rights and the Constitution itself. And and, and that's exactly what we saw here. And under the Dobbs review, you have to go back in history. What were the founders uh, find or during the Civil War when we got the new amendments, what happened there. And it's a very good historical analysis as to what rights were, were in existence. And if, if the rights can't be found there, then you get to the rational basis review. And what they said is, is that, hey, this is not a, a gender issue. This is a minor issue, mm-hmm. minor child issue. Mm-hmm. And and when you say it's a parental right issue, well, we, we actually don't think that the parental rights were talking about this back then, but in, in regard to more of being able to raise your child in, in faith and in, in education and, you know, uh, in different career paths, where there has been multiple cases that have restricted parents' rights when it's harming the child. Right. And in those cases, when the state... There's an co- interesting in, collision there, yeah, yeah. It is. Then, then it's a rational basis review, and I've actually been on, involved in, in multiple cases when you're dealing, especially with religious beliefs of a child. Yeah who is going through a health issue, and the judge has to make a really tough decision yep. as the parents mm-hmm. are saying, don't give treatment, right. and the child and, and the doctors are saying, this child will die, judge, yep. and the judge has to make that hard decision on behalf of the child because right. the child is a minor, and everybody's a ward of the state at that, at that level. Right. Right. So that's what they were really interested in, and I think, again, it's one of those, please, everybody should go read it because it's a good history lesson, if nothing else. And um, and it really goes back to what was uh, a parental right and what is the issues of minors um, through through our historical basis. And I think uh, it, it's going to be an interesting if this gets up to the Supreme Court, what happens next? And and it's going to sooner sooner probably rather than later is my guess. Uh, you can tell me differently if I'm wrong, but. When people say, but Liebson or, or Johnson, where in the Constitution is any of this addressed? People have to, you know, go and probably take a look at something in our history called substantive due process, right? That's what has given birth to this kind of thing, right? That, that's exactly right. And that's where the fundamental rights come in, is that you're so, right. that, that without due process of law, either any of those three areas, by the way, the strict, right. the heightened, or the rational, you're entitled to some due process before 
um, the government is able to take away any right. Mm-hmm. So um, in, in, in many cases, it's business rights and things like that, the rational basis level. But even then, it's like, hey, there's no rational basis for the government to do this other than hurt my business. Mm-hmm. And that's where the courts have to review and say, yeah, I agree with you. So no matter what activity we're doing, we're entitled to due process before they take away that action. And that's what the courts are kind of grappling is, where, where does it fit within that scheme? Now, what's going to be really interesting is, is that here we're talking about um, transgender uh, medicines and puberty blockers right. and things like that. But these were the exact same, the puberty blocker and, and were, uh, some of the other courts have utilized that same science and medicine to allow um, children to play in other gender sports, right. including down in Tucson. Right. So it's, there is going to be that interplay and kind of conflict as we're, we're dealing with what do we actually do in these situations. And it's just going to be a lot of trial and error until the courts kind of settle it out. Yeah, it's going to be a—yeah, you're going to need a big whiteboard. You're going to need a lot of trees and branches to, to figure this stuff out, and it's going to constitute right. a lot of really interesting— Law school exams. Well, Brett, thanks. Uh, well, stay close to us on this stuff. I know the audience is keenly interested in it. And um, it is interesting, too. I guess it, just thinking back in memory, just a minute left or so, you think about substantive due process. Yeah, it kind of came out of an economic thing, but it also came out of a kid's thing, too, right? I mean, that Lochner stuff was about the collision between economic and children's rights, too, if I'm not mistaken, where it all started. <laughs> yeah, that, that's pretty good. Back yeah. in the 20s. Yeah. So I'm, I'm impressed, Seth. <laughs> I, you know, if I have one thing to do in life, it's to try and impress you, Brett. I always like I'm always I always have to drink, eat my Wheaties and drink my coffee before I call you, and I always do. And uh, sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. Bless you, Brett Johnson. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You betcha. We'll talk to you soon and have fun tonight. Uh, Brett Johnson from Snell and Wilmer Law Firm. SWLaw.com is their website. Uh, not a uh, not a sponsor or anything like that. Just uh, Brett's a great lawyer, and they're a great firm, and we love having his analysis on because it's the best. I'm Seth Liebson, and we'll be right back. And thank you for supporting an investment that actually does help people. A lot of people are talking about this investment. So just to review the basics of why refi, yes, totally true. You can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve. Yes, you can turn your income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, and there are absolutely no fees. There is no attack on principle if you ever need your money back at any time, and you'll get your monthly statement with no surprises. If you're not sure if you trust this company, this secure collateralized portfolio, excuse me, if you're not sure if you can trust this economy, the secure collateralized portfolio may be a good option for you. But if you'd like to meet with the guys at Y-Refi, uh, they invite you to come by their offices. They're headquartered here locally at uh, Scottsdale Road in the 101. Or you can check them out online at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-YREFI24. That's 888-YREFI24. If you're looking for a solid investment that helps people, contact my friends at YREFI and tell them I sent you. David, um, young David, I, uh, I don't know if when you hear that kind of analysis about these kinds of things, if your head is spinning too, we're, we're grappling at a political level with when we're talking about sex changes and gender therapies again whatever particular language you prefer we're grappling with something that we all feel was just kind of sprung on us in the last two years and hardly quite yet used to it including the right language around it it's so brand new 
and now we're having to deal with you know complex issues of Fourteenth Amendment legal analysis as to what kind of an what kind of uh, scrutiny, what kind of levels of analysis apply to these kinds of laws when they're challenged. Uh, there's an oft quoted and unhelpful quote, frankly, that people use from Oliver Wendell Holmes. They like to often cite him saying. Hard cases make bad law, and it's not a very useful quote. But I do think it might be more useful if we started just recognizing that if this is hard to follow, you're you're not wrong to think it hard to follow. Insanity in life is creating insanity in law. And uh, when you talk about levels of heightened scrutiny, scrutiny, you talk about compelling state interests, and you talk about strict scrutiny, and all the all the rest. If um, if 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 you're if you're thinking at any point in your educational career growing up that law school is a good idea or sounds too complex both things are true uh it is a good idea and and it is a good idea and they have a knack for making things too complex our problem is lawyers uh our problem is not the law our problem is not the constitution but to understand the way that this Constitution and constitutional rights are going to be interpreted, it might not hurt if you're ever thinking about going to law school. I'm a big proponent of it. I learned a lot in law school. And uh, what I learned most is that law professors don't teach and don't know the Constitution. But if you want to know what they do rely on to give us the world we live in, that's what they'll teach you. All right, we'll be right back. 